everyone, and welcome to episode 34, big episode 34 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast in the universe that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. We're coming to you this fine summer day. I assume it's a fine summer day wherever you are. Um, and my name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. And joining me as always is Ken Best. I am here at the board. But not joining us is Julie Bartuka, who is enjoying a well-deserved vacation. It's strange not having Julie here. I know. It's very odd. I know. This is, uh, I'm not sure how this is going to work. I'm not sure. Uh, a, a two-person ship here, but we're going to try our best, folks. We do have some great stuff for you, uh, including a contribution from a, a, a friend of the podcast that we'll get to later. And uh, we have some headlines. Why don't we start with headlines? Well, I guess I should go first. You should, yeah, you probably should go first. As you were, we are, we're talking, head coach Jim Penders of the baseball team uh, became the winningest coach in program history earlier this week when the Huskies defeated Tulane by a score of 8-5 to five in New Orleans. The win was number 557 in Coach Pender's 16-year career as head baseball coach. He passed his mentor, the legendary Andy Baylock, who won 556 games between 1980 and 2003, and he is still here as Director of Alumni and Community Affairs for the football team. Coach Penders is just the fifth baseball coach in UConn in the last 94 years. Wow. And uh, right now, as we are recording this, the Huskies are in Clearwater, Florida, at the American Athletic Conference Tournament. They now have a record of 34-22 and for this year, and they hope to get back to the NCAA tournament uh, where Coach Penders has taken them Five times in the past nine years, including a trip to the Super Regionals in 2011. So hopefully we'll be still be playing baseball uh, by the time you hear this. I have less exciting news. Uh, it's, it's May uh, as we record this. And that means one thing here at the beautiful University of Connecticut campus in Stores, Connecticut, and that's construction. I had some brief construction updates. It's mostly road stuff, but in particular, I think, of interest to listeners is uh, the traditional access to the dairy bar is closed. The road that most people turn off from 195 is being renovated, maintained, whatever you do with a road to make it better. It's being made better. That's what's happening. It's being improved. But there is uh, two other entrances you can take. Just follow the big dairy bar signs. It's actually either, either if you're coming south on 195, the first turn that you could take, right. or the second one if you're coming north. That's right. And on June 11th, there's going to be a public hearing on the proposal for a new ice hockey arena. Here on campus, so that is underway. Um, that's that's important because uh, the hockey teams are doing very well. Yes, and we want as many people as possible to see them, and the requirements for hockey East are being met, and uh, we want we want to continue their success. I'd love to be able to see some hockey games here on campus. I go right now to the what I will always call the Civic Center, no matter what. Although I think it's technically the XL Center, and uh, you know the building, um, it's it's getting on in years. But the Huskies are actually in in the leading uh, position or close to the top of attendance in Hockey East because the team is doing so well and there is great affection for hockey. The games are crowded. The games are crowded. It's almost a bit like the old Whalers atmosphere. Actually, if I'm going to be honest, it's better than some of the old Whalers atmospheres that I recall as a kid. All right. So those are our headlines. We don't have any headlines from Julie. I assume her headline is that she's enjoying her vacation. I'm guessing she's tweeting and... Facebooking and other things to, for her friends and family. Yes, if you follow her on Instagram, there's a lot of great pictures from her trip. So why don't we jump right into our stories this week. Ken, you've got something exciting for us. The Nutmeg Summer Theater for 2019 opens June 6th 
And there's been a bit of a change in the schedule. Instead of uh, three shows running for two weekends each, there will be two productions each running for three weekends. And uh, on June 6th, which is a Thursday, Broadway veterans Jessica Hendy and Jennifer Cody will star in Mamma Mia. And on July 4th, Oliver Award winner Laura Michelle Kelly will star with Tony Award nominee and UConn alum Forrest McClendon in Cabaret. As always, uh, the artistic director for the Nutmeg Summer Theater is Terrence Mann. He's directing Mamma Mia, which is the musical based on the music of ABBA, which had four top chart hits, including the number one Dancing Queen. Uh, Mamma Mia is considered a jukebox musical because it features the music of a popular band compared to a stage show that has the original music that is written specifically for the story like uh, most traditional musicals. Terry Mann and CRT Executive Director Matt Polisi, who was our very first guest on the first podcast, stopped by the UConn 360 studios to talk about just what makes a jukebox musical. Mamma Mia is classified as a jukebox musical by those who write about it, but it's not necessarily an accurate term all the time to shows on Broadway that have a pop music soundtrack that may not be connected to the songs or... Even uh, we were talking about creations like Tommy and Hair that were original productions. They're not just songs. They have a theme, and they're they're really tied together. How do you define jukebox musical if that's what this is? To me, when you say a jukebox musical— it's almost pejorative. It's almost like you're dissing it. Almost like, oh, well, it's a jukebox musical because the music came out of the jukebox. It came out of, of source material, material that's already been written. And the stories, and then they just put a, they tried to put a, a play, a book, a libretto around all of these songs and have it make sense. And, you know, sometimes it succeeds and sometimes they don't succeed. We got to figure out maybe a different way to describe musicals that have come along that certainly could be classified as songs that have come out of recorded source music uh, a la jukebox, but that it's been, in, you know, take for instance, Tommy. Name some others. I see you got your paper there. Well, there's The Night, night That Made America Famous, which uh, on, mm-hmm. under Wikipedia, the Harry Chapin uh, show that was on Broadway, Beatlemania, which was the, be- the second one with the Beatles. Now, my question, Beatlemania has a book attached to it where they talk about the, their lives and how they became the Beatles and all of that? Uh, or yes. is it just getting – or is it what they used to call crossovers in musical theater? How do, we get a, how do we say a little something that gets us to the next song? That becomes a different – concept and I think a different genre to be defined. Because that's like the musical reviews like the music of Rodgers and Hammerstein, like a whole evening of the same. Correct. I think that's right. Yeah. Ken Davenport who's a Broadway producer uh, several years ago did his definition of a jukebox musical which you can find online. His definition is a jukebox musical is an original stage musical not based on a film that uses previously recorded or released popular songs that have no direct relation to the story as its musical score. So it's an original story, but the music doesn't necessarily tie to the plot of the story. The early rock and roll films, kind of the first videos, were a very thin storyline with Chuck Berry and a lot of the contemporary rock and rollers of the 50s era that Alan Freed and some other folks looking to make a, a buck 
uh, in, in another medium, mm-hmm. started coming out with those s- stories to get the music out to the public, which contrasts with what in the Wikipedia listing as the films that start out as jukebox musicals, they begin with Jimmy Cagney as George M. Cohan and Yankee Doodle Dandy. It's kind of a definition that is open for discussion as we're doing. Well, I was going to say, hasn't there always been crossover, though, between the theater in terms of music and the American popular music songbook? If you go back to Cole Porter or Irving Berlin. Right. Used to be the popular music of the day was a lot of musical theater crossovers, a lot of you know songs that came out of Showboat, that came out of Oklahoma, that came out of any Cole Porter or Irving Berlin, you know musicals or, or Rodgers and Hammerstein, you know, or um, so all of that was the popular music and that was on the radio. Then after rock and roll came in and took over, it crossed over into its own genre. You know, it created its own genre. So there's a distinction there. Right. And if you look at the list of musical films, as I said, they start with Yankee Doodle Dandy, but include Meet Me in St. Louis. Yeah. American in Paris, Singing in the Rain. So in your mind, Mamma Mia is a jukebox musical of sorts? If we're using that as the, the, the umbrella definition for those particular rules of engagement, yes, that it would be considered a jukebox musical. In as much as it's songs that were written, and then they said, let's, let's, do, let's put a story around it. You know, let's write a play. But the thing about Mamma Mia, and I saw it in London right after it opened, the thing about it was, I think, separates it from all others, is that you know that they are winking and nodding at you from the stage when they're going through this book and how they get to the next song. And that's what's charming and compelling about it and makes you laugh. And yet it's still poignant and, and, and touching. As a form of musical, which I guess we could, if we're going to classify different forms of, of, of the genre. Take of argument. We went down the list again before we started talking about the number of so-called jukebox musicals that have been on Broadway and appeared on Broadway over the years, nine throughout the 90s, eight in the year 2005, 10 in 2006, and last year, nine on Broadway. In your mind, as someone who's been in these productions for years, uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing for these so-called jukebox musicals to replace the original idea of musical, which is a book and songs that are original and everything comes together nicely. I think you have to track it all the way back to the producers and the people who are putting the money up to see things happen on Broadway. When we had the um, British Invasion and when Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber and Trevor Nunn and, and the Claude Michel Schoenberg with Les Mis, they all came over and they started doing these musicals that all of a sudden were sustaining themselves for not only five, ten, 15, but 20 years. So all of these people that were would, would, would have been investors, you know, all of a sudden they saw the long game in terms of investing, that they could make money. So that created a whole other community of investors who decided to come in and say, oh, if I can put money into that and it runs long enough and it's got enough cachet, then we'll be able to make money on that. So fast forward to over the last, it started in the 90s, as you said, but I think you've got producers sitting around going, how can we find that lightning in a bottle? And how can we, you know, grab that and maybe have some legs with it? And at the end of the day, it all deserves to be there. It gives jobs to people. There's a lot of talent up there. You want to hear those songs. What you want to know more than anything else is how are you going to put that story together that's going to make it last and and, and make you care about sitting in the audience and make other people care for the next 20 years sitting in the audience. That doesn't happen very often. It seems we've got a dearth of folks that don't 
want to produce or go out and champion new works. And that, to me, is, is, is a sad uh, commentary. Well, Mamma Mia is a show that has gone on. It's been out there for a, yeah. a very long time now, and there's several others that have been in that category. What is it that has captured people's imagination and keeps it out there? Because this band was only together for 10 years. Here again, it's that lightning in a bottle. Right place, right time, right sound, right combination. And, you know, and somebody just took it and ran with it. Plus, they wrote great songs for what our ears wanted to hear at the time and what we wanted to feel at the time. And that still sustains us today. It, it, we know because if you're a baby boomer, then you grew up going through changes like we were talking about earlier. You know, you went through the rock and roll of the 50s and you went through the early stuff in the, um, the, the wall of sound and then you went into rock and, and Led Zeppelin that changed the paradigm and then into, and then you got to the mid mid. 70s you got earth wind and fire every it was just such a melding pot an, an unbelievable kind of kaleidoscope of uh, of music and all of a sudden here they pop up so to be able to be sustained that long we just decided that they were that good another fact that uh probably is not in the memory bank but again i find these things and i know you like to hear this stuff this production has been in more than 50 countries on all six continents except for antarctica it's been everywhere <laughs> We have a big announcement. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies well. and gentlemen, we'll be traveling south. Always great talking with Terry Mann and Matt Pugliese. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the Nutmeg Summer Theater begins Thursday, June 6th, with the opening performance of Mamma Mia, which continues through June 22nd. Uh, Cabaret opens July 4th and goes through July 21st. And in addition to the longer run of the two shows, starting times for weekday performances will now be a half an hour earlier at 7 o'clock, which will help uh, members of the university community and, and others who live in the area to get a leisurely dinner in downtown stores, and then head to the Jorgensen for the show. Uh, subscriptions are still available for the season, and if you want more information, you can go online to crt.ucon.edu for all the details. And again, that's crt.ucon.edu. Very nice. I personally am waiting for a jukebox musical based on the work of Icons of Filth, and I feel like it's coming. <laughs> we, you know, we're, we're getting down the list now. We're eventually going to reach Icons of Filth. What's that style of music we were making fun of last week? Grindcore? Grindcore. They're yes. more D-beat, but yeah, no, it's a similar family anyway. All right, so let's turn from the world of music to the world of archives and preservation. We have a recorded piece that was contributed to us by friend of the podcast and occasional guest host, Graham Stennett, university archivist. Um, and this is pieces he recorded at a recent Yukon uh, Archives event. Ken, tell us a little bit more about what happened. Well, you and I were both there because true. Uh, that is one of our favorite places to visit on campus, the uh, Dodd, Thomas J. Dodd Center, uh, which has the Archives and Special Collections section. They had an open house uh, where the Yukon Archivists provided faculty, students, and staff with the opportunity to see documents, photos, and other materials from their collections. Uh, Graham, who has been with us before, as we mentioned, uh, and is the host of the Archive show on WHUS Mondays at 10 a.m. Uh, 
talked with many of his colleagues uh, as the open house took place about what they do and some of the interesting materials they work with at the Dot Center. My name is Rebecca Parmer, and I'm the uh, head of Archives and Special Collections. The event is called In a Manner of Speaking, and it's an open house that is really designed to give sort of an inside look at the varying ways in which archives speak to us. The modes of expression from creative endeavor to personal narrative to organizational accounts, and the ways in which we as observers witness this moment in history and struggle with, engage in conversation around, and really think about the perspectives and the viewpoints uh, and the, the narratives that are put forth through these really staid, lifeless collections. On their own, these are pieces of paper, these are books, these are artworks, but our task is to really think about what perspective, what viewpoint this offers into that moment in time. We really have opened it up primarily to the research community here at UConn, so faculty, students, staff, uh, as the primary users of this material. But then we've also extended it into the collectors, the donors, the people for whom the, these collections are meaningful, who have built these collections over time, who are continually engaged with or interested in, as a way of in part showing our thanks and as a way to show them how we use this material, um, how this material is used by others, and again, you know, the ways in which we sort of engage in this conversation. It's hard to choose because, you know, I think we go into this field with a love of all of this type of material, but I'm really drawn to a couple of things in particular. I have a profound love of scrapbooks, in part because I think it is one of the clearest ways to get a sense of personal narrative that is not written in a diary or a journal. These are the things that are meaningful to people that they want to remember, speaks to those themes of memory, uh, remembrance, of um, recollection. I think they give us a really interesting snapshot into a particular moment in time, whether they're students and it's the scrapbook of their student years you know, here at UConn, or whether it's around topics that they're interested in. Um, we have lots of scrapbooks of people who clip out newspaper clippings around particular topics, and I think that, that tells us a lot about both that moment in time, but also the creator uh, of, those, of those books. I'm Melissa Batt. I'm an archivist here in Archives and Special Collections. I oversee the literary collections and the rare books collections, such as they are. But I can tell you that the rare books collections now are not the rare books collections of old. They include graphic novels. They include spoken word albums. They include artist books, catalogs of artists, contemporary artists that, say, reference materials in the archive. So that's what you see here. It's really terrific. This is Elizabeth Catlett, who is the illustrator. She illustrated Margaret Walker's, who was a Harlem Renaissance-era poet, her poem, For My People. And she is a lithographer. These are stone lithography, brilliant colors, but also lar you know very large format. And we get this book requested a lot, particularly by the um, fine art grad students who heard about it and are interested in lithography. It's really exciting, and I put it together with these other art catalogs depicting collage, which is kind of a, a, a contemporary art that a lot of African American artists have brought into their art-making, collage, referencing old images, referencing archival materials, and bringing them into their art today.
I am Laura Smith. I'm one of the archivists in Archives and Special Collections. And the collections I oversee are the Railroad History Collections, Connecticut Business and Labor, and some professional organizational records and some Connecticut history collections. And um, I brought some examples out from the collections I oversee. One of them in particular, an item that I really love, is sort of a wide-angle shot of the crew at the Cedar Hill Engine House in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. These are railroad workers for the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad, and it's 40 or 50 men, and they're all posed for the camera at the roundhouse. You can see the engines in the background, and I like it because it shows kind of the common railroad worker in his work spot, and also I want to say that in all of the railroad photographs that we have, which uh, I can easily count them, you know, well above 200,000 separate images in the, in the entire collection. There are very few photographs of African-American workers, and you know that the railroad must have hired African-American workers, but there's no photos of them. So this photo from the Cedar Hill Engine House in New Haven, Connecticut, provides proof that the railroad did employ black workers. I'm Dr. Patrick Butler. I'm the Education and Outreach Coordinator here at the Archives and Special Collections at UConn. This is a 17th century early printed book of Roman law produced in Frankfurt in 1623 and what's pretty unique about this particular piece is not only its early date of printing but the fact that uh, its spine is fractured in one place and we can see a roughly 12th to 13th century medieval manuscript in its spine. It's actually uh, a practice for early bookmaking that medieval manuscripts would be shredded because they were basically filler material for a lot of printing uh, workshops close at hand, usually a lot of it. Something that seems absolutely uh, ridiculous now, but it was very common practice during the day, especially when you look at the changes <laughs> that printmaking coming at the time with a shift in the Protestant uh, Reformation, the idea of what was considered Catholic sacred texts and Protestant sacred texts were very fluid. So what was considered disposable was uh, a very open question to printmakers. It does seem kind of sacrilegious almost, but like the, the fragment that we have in the spine of this particular piece is from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. But because it was maybe a defective copy, it does have a lot of scribal errors to it. It isn't a very good, clean copy of the text. Um, it might have been just fit for deconstruction and basically used to reinforce the spine of another project. And it's very interesting that this is coming at a time where printers are looking back to the antiquity as opposed to the medieval period for inspiration. This is like a reviving of what is considered uh, enlightened views on law coming straight from the Roman period. Scribes in the medieval period were very thrifty because vellum was so expensive. So any time that you could abbreviate the most common phrases in Latin, they did it. And this uh, medieval manuscript fragment is no exception to that. Um, there's a lot there that needs to be expanded upon. And actually, the Dodd Center archives, through Graham, who is the archivist for the alternative press collection, and we have a punk rock collection that he has some display on, uh, is actually in the community right now. Uh, Live at the Anthrax is an exhibit of photos uh, taken at the infamous hardcore venue in Norwalk in the late 1980s by uh, photographer Joe Snow. Uh, at Willimantic Records in downtown Willimantic, there is an exhibit of this material going through August 9th. Willimantic Records is open 
usually at noon, starting on Wednesdays and going to about 7 o'clock uh, most of the week, except Sunday till 5. Uh, it's a really cool exhibit, and the idea that Graham had is to get the archival material into community spaces where people might relate to it more. That people are not usually going to make the special trip to a university archive, but if it's in a spot where they're going to go normally, they'll see it. And as a special treat for our podcast listeners, uh, in one of the photos uh, on display, there's you can see me in the crowd, not at the Anthrax. It's actually a photo taken in Willamette or in North Windham, technically, back in the '90s in my punk rock days. So you can go see Tom. Yes, you can go see me. You and can check out the the vinyl and the cassettes and the romantic records. Kind of what you can do a Where's Waldo thing with a crowd shot from Studio 158. Taken by UConn alum Jay Adelberg. So there you go. Well, speaking of history, and speaking of the late 80s, we have some history from the late 80s. This rolls nicely as a transition Incredible. from these archives and special collections where you do a lot of your research for Tom's History Corner. It's like we planned it. This uh, installment of Tom's History Corner, and by the way, uh, people have been writing and asking about this. The, the, there's a bill to change the name in the General Assembly. My understanding is it's being held up in committee. So it might not be this session. It might be next session, but it's going to happen. I did not see that on the list when I was at the Capitol on Monday. I'm told by our, our lobbyists, the podcasts. We have our own lobbyists. But it's still Tom's History Corner for the time being. And this uh, episode of the History Corner takes place actually late 80s, early 90s. One of the iconic features of Yukon life is, of course, the dairy bar. You have to get ice cream. It's practically synonymous with the University of Connecticut. It's almost unthinkable that we would not have the dairy bar on campus. There are times when a 3 o'clock meeting is called, yeah. and we, re we walk across campus to the dairy bar for that 3 o'clock meeting and have ice cream while we are discussing important issues. As hard as it is to believe, the unthinkable was being thought. Starting in spring of 1989, when the Yukon dairy operation was threatened with closure by the State Department of Agriculture for code violations. So let's, let's talk about the creamery for a little bit. The creamery is where, literally, the stuff gets made. Milk. I've, I've seen it. Milk taken from Yukon cows, state cows, is made into delicious ice cream here at the University of Connecticut in the creamery. The creamery itself actually started in the 1900s. It's been in different locations since then, but we've been making our own dairy products since the early 1900s. And by 1989, that included butter, sour cream, yogurt, cottage cheese, fluid milk, and ice cream. During the time when most dairy products on campus were provided by the dairy poor. It's true. And the dairy bar also supplied a number of state clients. Uh, and we'll get into why this was a problem. So after the agriculture inspection uh, ruled, determined that the creamery needed about $2 million worth of renovation work. Uh, and the, the operation was actually uh, in the red. And now part of the reason it was in the red is because the creamery actually made money, but some of the money was being used to subsidize academic salaries and for travel expenses, which was legal but not a great accounting practice. And also because the state prison system, which was one of its biggest clients, was just not paying its bill. They were in jail. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess what do you do with that? Do you send it to collections? I don't really know what you do. Do you send corrections to collections? hey -o. So in May of 1989, then-President John Castine asked the Board of Trustees to consider closing the creamery. And what would this mean? The idea is that we'd still have cows because the cows were needed for academic purposes. And they live here. And they live here. But the milk would be sold to outside producers, and the logo and name Dairy Bar would be licensed to an outside company that would make its own ice cream, call it Yukon ice cream, and sell it back to the people of Yukon. There's a problem with that plan. There was considerable public opposition to this. Uh, a petition opposing it. And this, by the way, this is the days when you actually had to get petition signatures in person. You couldn't do it online. 
there were more than 15,000 signatures in opposition to this. So they, they tabled that notion, but the idea, if you will, kept churning subsequently. Hey-oh. Uh, and by August 1990, the creamer had stopped making cream cheese, sour cream, yogurt, cottage cheese, and butter. And in a Hartford Current story that month, uh, then-Associate Provost Mark Abrahamson said of the creamery, it's truly moribund. There's no academic loss in closing it. Milk production then ended in October 1991. You can still find milk bottles with the University of Connecticut logo. Yukon bottled and delivered its own milk up until 1991. Those days are over. However, 1991 was also the year that the state legislature approved bonding. $2.6 million in bonding to renovate the White Building, which is the home of the creamery, then is now, and the dairy bar. So that brings us to today. Today, only Yukon milk is used to produce Yukon ice cream from Yukon cows at the Kellogg Dairy Center. The, the entire operation has become an integral part of education for students. Students are involved in every part of the process from milking at the Kellogg Dairy Center to making the ice cream at the creamery. In 2016, the creamery made 49,882 gallons of ice cream, which was up from 14,406 in 2004. So we're making more of it and selling more of it. Uh, the creamery also makes award-winning cheese, thanks to Professor Dennis D'Amico, who started up the cheese-making operation. And students today can get a Bachelor of Science in Animal Science with a focus on dairy production management, or they can minor in dairy management. So the entire operation has been fully integrated into the academic curriculum. It's uh, an even bigger part of UConn than I think it was in the past, and uh, the future of the dairy bar is secure. Well, you can't get in there most of the time because there's a long line out the door. It's extremely crowded. And it was renovated, and the interior was spruced up a few years ago. Our design folks here worked yep. on that project. But, yeah, I can't even imagine buying Yukon-branded ice cream that was not made with Yukon milk. That would be just a shocking turn of events for me. Well, the idea that it's actually an ice cream store, so there's a business plan, there's customers to be served, there are uh, books to be kept. There's an entire education process of running a small business that our business majors as well as the agricultural students who are on the manufacturing end get to know. So it is a process. Absolutely. And it, it's been, you know, Yankee Magazine has called it the best ice cream in New England. Connecticut Magazine has called it the best ice cream in Connecticut. It's it's not just a Yukon thing. People all over know this ice cream. All right. Well, so we hope this summer you'll enjoy some delicious Yukon ice cream at the Dairy Bar or wherever you happen to be. You can just buy it, put it in a cooler, and bring it home. What you can also do, if you like this podcast, is you can uh, subscribe if you haven't. You can rate it and review it online. We'd like that. You can spread the word, tell your friends. You can also follow us at Yukon Podcast on Twitter.com. You can follow me at Maine underscore old, where I post old photos and bits of trivia from Yukon's rich history. You can find Ken where? 30, 10.30 a.m. On WHUS 91.7, UConn Sound Alternative, the Good Music Show, is back on the air. It began last Friday. And once again, thanks for listening. Next time we come back, we will have Julie back with us. So all you Julie fans out there, don't worry. She's coming back. And in the meantime, check out the UConn Archives exhibit at Willimantic Records. (laughs) 